everyone, it's Adam Farkas. Welcome to this very special edition of ODWire Radio. We're on live today. Um, and we're on live because we're sort of dealing with the aftermath of, of Hurricane Sandy. And today's show is all about dealing with natural disasters and, and how to keep your practice running uh, when you have problems. Um, you know, we have with us today Ken Rudzinski, who you all know as the, the financial advisor on ODYR. He's given us great advice in the past. And we have him here again today. But before we, we introduce Ken, Paul wants to say a few words. I always have a few words to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, this particular topic really strikes a chord with me uh, because it takes me back 23, over 23 years uh, to, uh, to 1989. In 1989, I was uh, in Omaha, Nebraska on a Sunday, finishing a, attending a meeting. And on my way home, there was a snowstorm combined with an airline strike. And I ran from... I found myself running in Chicago to try to get back to New York. I finally reached home, uh, staggered in fairly late on Sunday night. Adam met me at the door. I said, Dad, take it easy. Take it easy. I said, Dad, I, I've got a full schedule tomorrow, and I, I've been struggling to, to get home. He says, look, Adam said, you know, I have good news and bad news for you. I said, uh-oh. Okay, Adam, tell me the good news. He said, the good news is you can sleep late tomorrow. I said, well, so what's the bad news? The bad news is your office burned down. <laughs> wow. When I heard that, our office was a brand new office in Midtown Manhattan, 4,500 square feet. We sunk our last dollar into making it into a, a show place, and there it was in ashes. What to do? Well, I don't want to go into the gory details of probably the worst six months of my life. Uh, but one thing for sure, once this happens you need to have the insurance to back you up or else you're in serious trouble. So with that introduction, I'm going to let Adam. <laughs> it's very uplifting. <laughs> yes. Adam and Ken, Ken, you want to take over and introduce our guests? Ken, are you there? Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. It's your, okay. It's your I'm chance. I'm sorry to interrupt, but when Paul, <laughs> I accidentally hit the mute button. Anyway, when Paul <laughs> contacted me about doing the show, um, I mentioned that even though I do a lot of insurance work, and many of you know that from from the uh, the posts and all that I've uh, put on OD Wire, I didn't uh, uh, the property casualty, fire, liability, etc. are not my area of specialty. So I recommended that uh, we bring on board Dave and Mike Oliva, whom I've known for 30-some years. Um, uh, they are as professional as it comes uh, and as knowledgeable in the area of property casualty, fire, liability, malpractice, etc. And so I recommended that they be on board for this show. And I think um, having known them for all the time that I've worked with them and have recommended clients to them, um, I think the audience today is going to get a real treat out of uh, having them on board to uh, talk about uh, property casualty liability and answer questions uh, that uh, uh, listeners might have regarding uh, specific uh, issues, um, maybe relative to uh, uh, Hurricane Sandy. So I'll turn it back to you, Adam and, and Paul, and um, go with it. Great. So, so Michael and David, thanks so much for being here. Uh, pleasure. It's our pleasure, gentlemen. Uh, thank you for the introduction. 
Great. So I guess Paul has a bunch of questions for you. He's very in tune to disaster today, obviously. So I think Paul <laughs> wants to start out and ask you a few very basic questions. You know, he's been he's been through this once before, but just for our listeners who may not have been. Um, so Paul's he's just going to start and ask you very basic questions about how to handle a disaster. Well, but more more basic than that is, uh, well, what is property and casualty insurance? Well, we're uh, I'm going to get into that with you in a uh, in a second, Paul. But the, one of the things I wanted to uh, say before we even get started is I wanted to thank uh, you both uh, and Ken for uh, having us on uh, the show, and I want to let uh, everyone listening know that we are in suburban Philadelphia, uh, the geographic area where our office is. We also have another office in southern New Jersey, uh, which was hit by uh, Hurricane Sandy. Um, we have. Due to our, our location, we, we have uh, friends and loved ones up on the island in North New Jersey and in Manhattan, and we just want to say our hearts go out to everybody who's in that area. Uh, the other thing I just wanted to hit very quickly was that because I, I know this is going out to a, quite a broad audience in uh, a lot of states, uh, I want everyone to know before we even get started that the states regulate the insurance industry in their individual states. This is not something that's governed. Uh, or mandated or, or by the federal government. Uh, so there's 50 states, 50 insurance departments. And so there's different rules, there's different regulations, there's different policy forms, there's different uh, endorsements, there's been, uh, there are different uh, coverage interpretations per state. So we're going to be, we're going to try to give you as much information as possible, but in a general sense, but there are states uh, specific things that we probably won't get into today. Because the the the, uh, uh, the audience is so broad, we'll do the we'll do the best we can. But we want everybody to know that that as as many commonalities as there are, there's also differences uh, with every state. Right. And okay. one other thing everyone should know is that we're live today. However, we're taping the show, uh, so if you think this has value, you might want to spread it out to your neighbors, friends, and neighbors that could use it. Uh, it should be ready to be listened to on tape uh, by early next week. So for, with that little introduction, uh, so let's, let's go into what, what is property and casualty insurance? Property and casualty insurance, so let's talk about the two terms. Uh, property is sticks and bricks. It's tangible items. It's the buildings themselves. It's the stock uh, that you guys own. It, it's the desks, the computers, the inventory. Uh, it, it's also the when we can talk more about this. It's the improvements and betterments that you uh, may have made to the building that you're in. So basically, if you think of property is sticks and bricks, okay, and that includes your uh, your homeowners. We're sitting here talking about uh, businesses, but that includes your homeowners also. Uh, casualty is what we commonly refer to as the third party coverage. Property is first policy. Your insurance, your first uh, party meaning your insurance company is dealing with you. Casualty is, in general, uh, a liability claim where uh, you uh, cause an injury or allegedly cause an injury to someone else, and you're asking your insurance company to step into your shoes uh, to defend you. And that could be something that happens in the practice, outside the practice, uh, with your car, anything like that. So it's really, um, there's the, the property, the sticks and bricks side, and the uh, we'll call it the liability side. Right. Now, does is this offered by all insurance brokers, or is this a very specialized type of business? 
Well, it's you have to be licensed, Paul. So if you're licensed to uh, be, in, uh, if you have a, a property and casualty license, and then you would get um, insurance companies that, that you would represent. So not all brokers are going to offer property and casualty, uh, but not all brokers uh, offer disability insurance either. And there's brokers and agencies that work in different areas of expertise. So an example would be, uh, as you know, Ken, who introduced us, uh, doesn't work in the property and casualty insurance, and our agency uh, doesn't really work in the life, accident, and health, long-term care uh, arena. Uh, there are also other uh, brokerages out there that uh, deal specifically on an, uh, an industry-wide basis, uh, uh, just focusing on one industry. So so, um, uh, so not everybody is going to offer uh, the same thing. So, so would, would a specialized broker have some letters after their name to, to indicate yes. that they're specialized in this particular area? Well, what that does... The answer is yes, it, it shows an expertise in a certain area. Uh, uh, Mike and I are both certified insurance counselors. That's a CIC. Mike is a CPCU. What these things indicate is our dedication to the industry, our dedication to our clients. Uh, the certified insurance counselor requires us to have uh, 20 hours of continuing ed a year, and uh, and we do that. We Our firm is... Uh, Big believers and very, uh, very dedicated to continuing education and keeping up with what's going on. Right. Not everybody, not everybody has those uh, designations, and so you know when, when you can, you should be dealing with uh, designated individuals, whether it's on our side of the business or whether it's uh, on, as an example, Ken's side of the business, CLU, CHFP. Uh, again, it indicates a higher uh, level of expertise. So it's it's appropriate then for a, for an optometrist who's looking for a new broker to ask these questions, uh, and they should the, the broker should be able to easily answer the uh, these these queries about expertise. Yes, yes, there, there, there's nothing wrong with answering asking that question, and you should get a, a direct answer. They they either they either have designated personnel on staff or they don't. Right, you know. So now that we have the ground rules, it's always an, an issue. What's the proper amount of insurance? What sort of coverage should someone have uh, for the, the, in the area of, of property and casualty? Well, that's, that's a relative question, uh, but I think we'll start with talking about uh, businesses. Um, yeah, the, uh, these are, let, let me just make this point. These are the conversations that you have before the claim. If you don't have these conversations with your agent, your broker, or whoever your insurance representative is before the claim, you're sure going to have them after the claim, and the conversations are not going to be as pretty after the claim. Uh, what we generally get into, if, if we have a building, uh, we get into whatever the replacement cost is. And uh, a good agent or broker has software where they can help uh, an individual determine what the replacement cost of the building is, because at the end of the day, that is what we want to do when there's a calamity. We want to replace the building. There's also other issues uh, that we get into during this, what, what I'll call our survey process, uh, that we get into about the municipality and the municipality's laws and ordinances. 
because they often have laws and ordinances that say you have to build your building back in a different way. Let me give you an example. Paul, back when you had uh, your your um, catastrophic loss on your building, uh, I don't know if the building was sprinklered. I don't know if you had handicapped bathrooms. I don't know if you had ramps. Uh, I know your, your elevators, your, uh, certainly your electric was up to date because you said it was a, a new building. But let's say that it wasn't and uh, the building burned down. And um, I'm just going to uh, make up some numbers here. Let's say it was a, uh, a $1 million loss. Then the borough, the municipality came in and said, Paul, you got to put a sprinkler system in. Paul, a handicapped bathroom. Not just one handicapped bathroom, but two handicapped bathrooms. Two ramps. Upgrade your electric uh, uh, alarm systems. That's all fine, except if your insurance policy is not endorsed to cover those things, then the responsibility of the insurance company is to replace the building the way it was. So if we take your million-dollar claim and we add a sprinkler system, two handicapped bathrooms, a couple of ramps, and let's just say upgraded, uh, upgraded electrical, upgraded alarm systems, your million-dollar claim may very well be $1.25 or a million dollars and another quarter million dollars of upgrades. If you don't have an endorsed policy, you're not going to, your insurance company isn't going to pay that. They're not going to pay for the upgrade. So those are the kinds of things that we get into with our clients before the claim. Now, now we have to take it to the next step, which is then we have to talk about uh, making an assumption that a, a practice is being run from these buildings. We have to talk about what is the value of the stock and the inventory and the, uh, the, the desks and the tables and the chairs and the rugs and, and the mirrors and, and the, the, uh, the medical equipment that you guys are, are using to examine the eyes? And um, uh, we need to get into what, does, what will that cost to replace? And how quickly can it be replaced? Yes, that's certainly an issue because if you, the, the, how quickly you can replace it, uh, um, plays into how quickly you're going to get back into business. Um, so those are things that, that you need to look at. And then, then on top of that, while, while all that's going on, let's just say you had the fire. While all that's going on, all of a sudden you don't have any income anymore. So now you need your income to pay yourself, to pay your people, extra expenses to maybe do some advertising, uh, to say that you're setting up across the street for a short period of time while you... Uh, recover from the claim. All these things play in, and, and uh, uh, we have a, a survey that we do. Uh, one thing you don't want to do, um, it's easier, let me just say this, it's easier to figure out the replacement cost of a building than it is for the doc, for you guys, to figure out what your contents are worth. But one thing you don't want to do is use your financial statement, because your financial statement involves depreciation. Your, your accountant depreciating your items may have fully depreciated. And a lot of times we're speaking to people and they, uh, they'll look at their financials and go, well, uh, it's $50,000. And we'll say, well, how long have you been depreciating it? I mean, uh, and it could be that they've depreciated hundreds of thousands of, of dollars worth of equipment down to 50,000, but that's great for your taxes, but that doesn't work for your insurance. If you have a claim, you're going to need a quarter million dollars to replace your equipment 
and your policy might have 50,000 because you took the number off your financials instead of uh, going through them and doing an inventory and at least trying to get a, um, a more up-to-date picture. But again, I want to stress these are, these are the conversations that we have. This is a good conversation we're having today because we haven't had a claim yet. But when you have them afterwards, you're going, oh, boy. Yeah, and what's true in optometry is that uh, the equipment that's five years old is, is just about as good as new in most cases, uh, and to try to replace it uh, with a five-year-old equipment, it, it becomes very difficult. So you have to end up buying new for old. So how does that enter into the, the whole mix of this? You were a little broken up on the question. Okay. I think we got the, the, the yeah, gist of it. That, that basically um, you, have, you have depreciated equipment that for, on, on, for tax purposes is now could be 100% depreciated, but you're working with it because it's almost like a brand new piece of equipment. Uh, but the difficulty is that, you can't buy depreciated that, equipment. You have to get new equipment. So, so how does that work? It has, the, the piece of equipment has uh, recognized functional value. Uh, and so the, the depreciate, let, let, let's say this, if, if, if a claim, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, but uh, if a claim was being depreciated and there's ways to structure the policy so it's not, but you need to do that up front, uh, if the claim was being depreciated, would not be the equipment typically would not be depreciated the same way uh, that it's depreciated on a, a tax sheet or on your financial uh, statement. For insurance purposes, equipment always has functional value, even though it has less value than it had maybe when it was new. Uh, the, the, the most simple and straightforward way to structure a policy is with replacement cost coverage on the equipment. Uh, and on all of your inventory, uh, in which case the settlement clause under the insurance policy says, we're going to give you new for old. Now, there's a requirement in the policy that you actually have to replace the equipment in order to get that value, but that kind of goes without saying if you're trying to get your uh, practice uh, back into business. But that's typically what we're doing, but it requires the thought process up front of, okay, what is the value? Uh, of, of this equipment if I had to replace it today. Uh, so it's all part of the thought process uh, that goes into the disaster planning, and part of it is having the correct uh, amount of insurance. Uh, so you've always got to be thinking of things in terms of what would the equipment cost to replace today, uh, regardless of how old or uh, how functional it is. And that the same thing applies to desks, chairs, uh, supplies, um, kitchen equipment. Uh, but again, uh, a thought process and an evaluation of value that takes place, you know, uh, on an ongoing basis and, of course, uh, before the claim. Right. So let's say then that you... So yep. Yeah, so I... It, 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 it requires some work that uh, sometimes uh, customers aren't as willing to put into it uh, because it does... Uh, uh, once you've done it the first time around, uh, it, it, it's easy to keep it updated, right. uh, but, but it, it is a little bit, it, it can be a little bit of work up front, but uh, it, it, it's a lot easier than trying to figure out, trying to figure that out when it's in ashes or uh, finding out that you don't have enough, uh, don't have enough coverage. And this is what we're talking. We're talking protecting catastrophes here. We're not talking nickel and dime claims on the nickel and dime claims. You'll 
well, first of all, you shouldn't make them, but uh, and you should have a deductible that's high enough that uh, that's not an issue. But uh, we're talking about getting back in business uh, after a catastrophe, and uh, so we're talking about adequate limits. Right. And so when, when you actually go get this policy, uh, should your agent be able to actually walk you through all of this so you can be very well prepared for when the, you know, the, the catastrophe does come? Absolutely. Your, your, your agent should, you know, a, a credentialed agent should be able to walk you through all of this. And uh, uh, one of the things that you should uh, be aware of is you uh, keep in mind, with the exception of the insurance piece of it, Okay, you know more about your business than your agent does. Uh, so, uh, whatever they don't, your agent may not prompt uh, in the way of values or particular pieces of equipment. Um, you you want to be bringing that to uh, their attention um, if you if you think something hasn't been addressed in terms of values, particular piece of equipment, or uh, um, or even storage that you might have uh, off premises uh, somewhere. Um, these are the things that have to be gone through, and, and it's, so it, it's a it's a two sided uh, it's a two sided deal. Your agent should be able to walk you through it, and you should be able to help with you know the integral knowledge uh, of your own business. Right. So let's say then that you're all set up, you've done your homework, you have all the paperwork that you need, and you're away at a conference, and you come back, and your office is burned to the ground. <laughs> um, you know. Who do you call, and what what can you expect from the, the folks that you actually make contact with initially? Well, uh, we, we heard you say uh, that the, the office burned to the ground. Yep. Then, then I didn't hear exactly what the question was. Yeah, so so you need to make a claim, and and when you actually make contact with with your uh, with your broker, you know what what's the process? What happens? What can you expect from your broker? Okay. Okay. Let's 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 talk about this whole process, this whole uh, uh, catastrophe situation. Because, as as Mike stressed, we we are in the business of helping with catastrophes, not not with small claims. Not that we not that we don't help with small claims, but really, but we're we're here to help you with a catastrophe. Um, so let's let's start a little bit with that. First of all, uh, when a catastrophe occurs or any sort of a a serious claim, let, let's just talk for a minute. One of the things that the, the insured and the insurance company both have duties. So let's, let's just talk about that. Uh, the doc, uh, the, the doctor or anyone else who has an insurance policy has a duty to try to protect the, the property from further damage. Okay, now if the building's on the ground, that's one thing. But most, there's not a lot you can do. But most claims, even when they're serious, are not total losses. So let's just say you've got a, a, a tree that has come, a, a Hurricane Sandy, and a tree has come right through the roof and right into the practice. The water's pouring in. You, you have a duty to, as best as you can, and we'll use the reasonable man here, to try to uh, mitigate what damage is happening. If there's any way... Uh, that you can, you know, board up a window, call a carpenter, you call a tree guy, uh, you try to do something to mitigate the damage. And what Mike and I like to tell our clients is react when that happens, react as if you didn't have insurance. 
say, if I don't have, if I didn't have insurance on this building, what would I do? I'm going to call the tree guy. I'm going to get the carpenter. I'm going to call somebody to, to pump the water out. So you get that started. Now, if you can't do anything, uh, so I, I want to I be sure all the docs understand what I'm saying here. Uh, if, if it's a dangerous situation, uh, there's wires down, there's, there's other mitigating things. Maybe there's a, a fire going on at the same time. Uh, no, there's, there's no, we don't want anybody getting hurt. There's no loss of life. We don't want any of those things to happen. So when I say you have a duty to try to protect the property, we're again with the reasonable man, okay? We don't want anyone getting hurt trying to protect the property, but you can't just leave a hole in the roof for four days uh, before you call your insurance company, okay? That's, that's the point I'm trying to make. Uh, then, then what you're going to do, you're going to contact your insurance company or your agent. Now, there's, and the reason I say that is because some insurance companies want you to contact them directly. Other insurance carriers want the claim to come through the agent or broker. Now, this is something that you should be clear about before the claim. Again, uh, Mike and I are going to keep going back to preparedness before you have the claim. You should ask, uh, ask the agent or broker, what's the reporting process? And if, if I'm calling the insurance company directly, we need their 800 numbers. We need their website. We need these things. And in a second, I'm going to uh, uh, continue about what things you need, you're, you're going to need. Um, or if the agent, if it's a situation where you contact the agent, you have to say to the agent, how do I get a hold of you? How do I get a hold of your people in the middle of the night? Okay. That's something that, that you should have, the business owners should have in their pocket or in their smartphone. Okay, you need to know these telephone numbers uh, or websites up front. Okay, and again, that's something your agent or broker should be able to tell you. You should be completely clear on the claim reporting process. Now, uh, there's information. We've, uh, our experience is that uh, sometimes when there's a serious claim, a lot of the information that you need or that the, the doc is going to need is in the building or uh, it's, it's in his business. Uh, there's things, yeah, and, and a municipality or the fire department or someone else may not let you access that information. We, we've had this situation when clients of ours have had fires. Uh, you want to have emergency contact numbers. You want to have a hard copy of your phone bills because you need Utility bills. utility bills. You're going to need to change your utilities to another location. You're going to need to change your telephones to another location. And you're going to call the telephone company, and they're going to ask you for the, the code numbers, and they're going to ask you for your account numbers, and all that kind of stuff. And if that stuff is locked up inside the building that, that, that's partially burned or burned to the ground, you don't have it. I can tell you, uh, you've got a mountain to climb when that happens. You're, you're going to have some headaches. So... Uh, one of the things we recommend that people have, again, is, is a list of things that they will need in an emergency. And, and again, as Mike said, it's, it's utility bills. Uh, it's your insurance company's phone numbers. It's your insurance agent's phone numbers. Uh, your, your telephone bills, copy. Uh, you, you, there should be something like that in another location, even if it's a file, a file at your home, a file in your briefcase that you take with you. Okay? It doesn't, these things aren't a big deal. You need a copy of your utility bills, a copy of your phone bill, 
uh, your insurance policy numbers, your, your insurance agent and or your insurance company's 800 claim number. It's not that much stuff, uh, but it, it makes a huge difference in when, when there's a calamity. It does, that you, that you have these things because uh, they're going to help you. That information is going to help you get back into business. You know, it's very interesting. It's, it's less of a problem, I think, with Hurricane Sandy uh, because it's mainly flooding. That's the issue for the, the poor optometrists that are out of business now. With fires, my experience was uh, you've, not only couldn't we get into the building, but once we could, the uh, New York City Fire Department said, uh-uh, this is arson. They immediately assumed that uh, we burned our own office down. That was the basic assumption. And we had to prove that it was not arson. And it took several weeks before we could even begin doing anything because they had to interview our entire staff and, and look at our records and see that we had a very, very viable business. And there was no reason to have this type of uh, fire. And, I, you know, we, we weren't in the garment district where we, we had to have the fire, you know, to, to pay our bills the next month. Uh, so th this also becomes an issue where you have to deal with municipalities. Uh, so, sorry to interrupt. Gentlemen, I you continue. Uh, but one question I do have um, is when, when you uh, decide uh, who's going to protect you, do you depend on your, the, the goodwill of your insurance company or do you have to hire protection, which is called, in our particular case, it was called a public adjuster. Could you talk a little bit about what a public adjuster is? Sure. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, I want to address that situation with what? the uh, municipality and, and, and yeah. arson. Yeah, let me, let me, may I take uh, 60 seconds to address a little bit about the uh, the, uh, the New York City and the arson situation? Yep. And then we'll go to the public adjuster. Sure. Is that okay, Paul? Absolutely. Yeah, I just want to keep, uh, I want to try to stay as organized as possible. Um, it isn't, it isn't just the, the arson situation that uh, what happens there is that the claim, anything that can delay a claim can be costly. Your situation was there was an arson. Okay, they, they decided there was arson, then they investigated. Now, let me start with this. Just because a fire is arson doesn't mean the insurance company's not going to pay. They're not going to pay if the policyholder had anything to do with that arson. But if they didn't, and out, it was an outside situation, someone just started the fire, uh, something like that, which I'm sure was your situation, well, then they ultimately are going to pay. But what these things do is delay the claim, and that costs everybody, especially the policyholder, money. I was thinking of a, a $2 million fire that uh, one of our clients had uh, actually two years ago last week. And one of the things that took the longest, actually over a year, was getting all the permits to rebuild. And that's a problem because it didn't have anything to do with the fire. The fire was down. The building was down. The building was cleared out. Uh, the plans were drawn up. We got them in business in another location. And we just waited and waited and waited for the uh, borough to ultimately um, uh, approve the plans. Uh, you, you know, you have the zoning commission and so on and so forth. That all takes time. So these are things that, that all the docs need to keep in mind. Uh, we can never take, I'm just going to make this comment, and then I'm going to go to the public adjuster. There's no such thing as taking the inconvenience out of an insurance claim. Mike and I know that. 
Everybody in our business knows it. Even even if it's a, a minor automobile accident, geez, you got to go to the body shop. You got to get an estimate. You got to get a rental car while they, you know, these things are a pain in the butt. Excuse my French. We know it. All we do, we try to help you along. We pay for it, but we can never take the inconvenience out of it. And again, that's why I'm going to stress that it is so, so important to be prepared before the claim. Now, so with that being said, let's let's shoot over to the, the, the public adjuster. The insurance companies have their adjusters. We all know that. The public adjuster is an independent person that represents the insured. Okay, meaning the doc in your in your guys' case it would be the doctor. Um, we believe M Michael and I are a little bit of contrarians. Uh, a lot of people in our business, uh, insurance agents and brokers, and a lot of people that work for insurance companies don't like public adjusters. They see them as standing in the way. They see them as uh, costing the insurance company more money. Uh, and there's good public adjusters and bad public adjusters. My Mike and I are a little contrarian on that. We believe there's a place for the public adjuster. We believe they can be an asset to, to both the agent, broker, and the insured, but in the right circumstance. Uh, we believe that they're a help and an asset in larger claims, either total losses or large claims where the client's going to be out of business. Uh, what, what the public adjuster can do that's a, that, that works for the, would work for the doctors is if you we get the doctor, the insurance agent broker and the doctor get themselves set up in another. We assume you, that, that you can't work in your current location because of a fire or flood or something else. We assume we get you uh, set up in another location. Well, you've got to run your practice, okay? You've got to keep the money coming in. In the meantime, Somebody has to work with the insurance company on getting your building fixed. So we believe that in a large loss like that, that that's where the public adjuster can help you. I, I, will, I will tell you guys, without using any names, that, that the client of mine that I was just talking about with the large fire, we got him through a $2 million fire and business interruption loss change of location, then change back into the new building. We got him through that without a public adjuster. And that was his choice. That wasn't our choice. That was his choice. But he has 13 locations, 13 businesses he runs. And in retrospect, he said to me, Dave, if I had to do it over again, I'd use a public adjuster. And I said, why, why is that? Uh, his name is Ken Tim. I said, why is that, Ken? He said, it wasn't anything that you guys did wrong. You, you were great. You couldn't have done any better. He said, but what I didn't do during that period of time was run my other 13 locations. He said, I concentrated on this location and getting us back in business, this location back in business, and then working on the building and working through all those issues. So he just said, in retrospect, uh, he wouldn't do it again because he – feels he could have done a better job of keeping the other locations running. But everything turned out fine. There's, there's a good ending to that story. And so, um, but to, to give you, if I could draw a, an analogy uh, of, of where we are, and this, is, and this actually is the analogy I use when I, when I speak to my own clientele. If you were planning a wedding 
20 or 30 guests, would you use a wedding planner? If you're planning a wedding with 300 guests, would you use a wedding planner? And what we think is, what most of our clients say, well, of, of course we wouldn't on 20 or 30. The wedding, you know, 20 or 30 people, that's the, that's the immediate family. The wedding planner is going to get in the way. And but when you're planning a, a wedding with 300 people, well, you might need some help. And that's where we are with the public adjusters. On the smaller claims, we, we believe they, they delay the settlement of the claim. Uh, they can often stand in the way, sometimes, sometimes. Uh, uh, they can sometimes stand in the way because they'll they'll be a, maybe it's a $3,500 claim and they're trying to make it a $6,500 claim. The the insurance adjuster digs in, the public adjuster digs in, and nothing gets done. So that's that's our uh, that's where we are. We we feel there's a place for them on the more catastrophic claims. And Mike, you'd like to add something here? Let me add uh, let, let me add something here. Uh, we, we do have uh, some clients uh, that have. Um, uh, we have a large uh, uh, real estate uh, risk uh, or clients down in uh, southern Jersey that has uh, close to 400 locations. Uh, and they, they have, as you can imagine, they have some claims on a regular basis. They actually retain a public adjustment firm to do all of their claim work. So none of their uh, administrative people are tied up with that in the uh, in the normal course of business. So they handle the small ones along with the big ones, but we mitigate that by using, uh, for them, I mean we mitigate it by, by having large deductibles and self-insured uh, retentions. But probably more important uh, to this uh, uh, determination on using a public adjuster, uh, our, our recommendation would be for uh, your policyholders, your, your docs, your members, uh, would talk to their insurance agent or broker, uh, get a feel from them about how they feel about uh, uh, the use of a public adjuster, and if they work uh, with any public adjusters. Uh, do they know guys who are good, basically, and, and, and honest and, and uh, have the best interest of the, of the policyholder uh, at heart? Uh, one of the important uh, things to determine there in conversation with the agent, if they do work with a public adjuster, is to find out if there's a monetary relationship between the public adjuster and the agent or broker. Because I'm going to tell you right now, there shouldn't be. Uh, in other words, uh, we have a very, uh, very reputable public adjustment firm up here, which is, is frankly, uh, it's the only one we recommend. Uh, and they're great people. Uh, and we do not get referral fees. We do not get percentages. We get nothing except the satisfaction of knowing that our clients being taken care of by this firm. That that's a that's a necessary point uh, that that needs to be made because if, if there's a monetary relationship uh, somewhere along the line, somebody may not be working in the best interest of the uh, of the policyholder. So uh, just just a comment there um, with regard to that. Right. Sound back a little bit. About Third-party, first-party with the public adjusters. Yeah, there's. A, Dave asked me to mention something else with the uh, the public adjusters. Um, a, a public adjuster, at least in the state states where we're licensed to do business, and I believe this is pretty much across the board, can only work for uh, the can only represent the policyholder uh, directly uh, with their own insurance company. So it, let me clarify that if 
if there was another party that was responsible for the damage, uh, and we, we had a case like this where a uh, uh, an oil company uh, came in and um, really messed up the repair on a uh, on an oil burner last winter and uh, it totally smoked up a house and uh, one of our clients and our, our client uh, against our advice did not want to go to the homeowner's insurance policy they because they didn't want to incur their deductible uh, and we can talk about that detail if you want to but uh, th they chose to go directly uh, against the oil company that did the damage which means the oil company insurance company liability insurance carrier is stepping in uh, to handle that claim in that case the public adjuster cannot represent the policyholder uh, to that third party i don't know if that's making sense or not but in, in that case they're, they're they're actually practicing law so uh, we ultimately were able to get the um the policyholder to make the claim directly to their own insurance to their own insurance carrier uh, and then the public adjuster was able to uh, represent them, and that actually ended up uh, being a, uh, a better settlement. And we normally uh, would recommend that anytime there's damage, even if it's the responsibility of a negligent third party, that the claim be made through uh, the um, the policy of, you know, our our, our, uh, our, our made through our own policy. I'm sorry. Uh, because it, that ensures a replacement cost settlement, uh, and it allows a public adjuster, if appropriate, to work directly with the insurance company. I, I don't know if that was clear or not, because that, that gets to be a, a complicated situation. Right. Makes sense to me. <laughs> I, I got a question, though. Um, in your experience, and you know, we just had a major disaster on the East Coast, what can someone reasonably expect when there is a major disaster? You know, you look at Sandy and you look at every single building flooded out of neighborhood after neighborhood. What can you expect in terms of a response um, from, from your insurance carrier? You know, we have to wait weeks, months before you can uh, get your claim settled? Well, I think we'll both talk about this. Uh, what you can expect is, um, well, it goes without saying, you uh, you can obviously expect delays. Uh, insurance companies uh, only have so many employees. Uh, the repair companies only have so many employees. Municipalities only have so many people to uh, try to mitigate damages. But you can also expect a little bit more flexibility uh, from the insurance company uh, in, in terms of uh, what they, what kind of repairs they approve without seeing the damage necessarily up front. Uh, they're going to be more um, flexible in, in regards to uh, uh, repairs to um, mitigate damage. And uh, it, it, the, the large catastrophes are, uh, they're a problem. They're a problem for the insurance companies as, as much as they're a problem for the, uh, the policyholders. And so sometimes the policyholders, you're really, you're kind of out there on your own uh, for, for a short period of time. You, you, you certainly can report the damage. Insurance company is going to uh, get claim people into the area. Uh, fortunately, the good news uh, in a lot of regards now is with the weather forecasting that we have, uh, insurance carriers are able to move people uh, into place, let's say, on the perimeter uh, of, of where the expected damage is so that they can move in and be prepared much more quickly with their mobile units. Um, 
uh, and to move into an area to try to uh, move the, the claims along more quickly. Major insurance carriers now uh, have uh, large mobile offices uh, that, that have a tremendous amount of electronics uh, attached to them. Uh, some of them actually have uh, uh, living spaces in them where the adjusters can uh, live in them. But uh, uh, so you, you expect more flexibility, uh, but it's more difficult to get the repairs done more quickly because there's only so many uh, restoration companies, there's only so many uh, workers right. uh, out there. Uh, but but it is always in the insurance company, let's, let's put it this way, uh, it's always in the insurance company's best interest to get claims settled as quickly as possible because as long as a homeowner or a business owner is out of their building, uh, that means that the... the um, the clock is running on the business interruption insurance, which means the insurance company is paying out extra dollars. Every day that a homeowner is not in the, able to be in their home and they have to go live elsewhere and they have to eat their meals out uh, and they have to be potentially in a hotel uh, every day that a, uh, a practice uh, can't be in business or that they have to operate at a location that's not their normal operating location if they can even do that. And that's another risk management uh, situation. Uh, the, the clock is running. The, the cash register is running for the insurance company. So they're motivated to approve these claims uh, and to get them uh, repaired as quickly as possible, especially if the policy coverage is correct. You had, bottom line, you had enough coverage. Uh, that takes a lot of the questions away. But we, but we also, in, in a situation uh, like Sandy, uh, you've got um, entire areas without power, uh, water, gas. Um, the municipalities, uh, the boroughs won't won't let people in uh, uh, until things are safe. Um, it, it's always, you know, sometimes we there's there's just we just have to wait until the, the people can get in there. In a in a calamity like this. Uh, yes, it is going to take longer, but the best thing you can do is be in contact with the insurance company. Tell them where you're going to be or ask them, where can I stay? Do you have some hotels? Um, where can where can I set up my business? Okay, uh, now, you know, you would be working on that anyway, but uh, they'll, they'll be helpful. They'll try to help you. But again, based on, and I haven't been there, you, you guys know that I, we said that in the beginning, but um, we being in the Philadelphia area, we're seeing a lot of coverage and some of those areas are just devastated and it is going to take more time, uh, to, to maybe get somebody back their practice back in than, than if, than if they had just had damage to the one building instead of the entire neighborhood being gone. That's, that, that's just the reality of a claim like that. And we, I don't mean to be negative about that, but we are, we are here to try to tell you like it is. And so, sometimes the, the, the only way to, to, to mitigate that is to have the right business interruption coverage in place because in a situation like this, you're not getting back into business right away, but at least your income will be replaced as right. what, what you lost will be replaced. Right, and if, if the business interruption is correct and, and done properly, uh, you, can, you can keep your employees on payroll. Uh, so... Uh, you, you can keep the um, try to keep to the extent you can. We know people out of their homes, but in that, those cases, try, try to keep a quality of life. Uh, it's it's one of the things that, that doing uh, the, the business interruption 
correctly can really help you. Right. I have one question. We have to backtrack just a little bit about the public adjuster. We didn't go over how they are compensated. Where does the no. public adjuster oh. get get their money? Is it a percentage of the, oh, sure. the claim? Yes, the, the public adjuster gets a percentage of the claim. The larger, generally, how it works, Paul, is the larger the claim, uh, the the lower the percentage, uh, because they're going to get a you know if it's a big claim, the, the, even a low percentage is is a, a pretty decent number, and that's that's one of the things that um, that the insurance industry struggles with because they uh, and they, they always have and they always will because their their thought process is well. It, it, if I'm paying this many dollars and the the uh, public adjuster uh, is getting a piece of it, then we're paying more than we should. But, but let's let's look at the, pra the practical part of it is that the public adjuster would argue, uh, and I think reasonably so, frankly, uh, that they're actually going to net for the policyholder a larger settlement, and th so their percentage. Uh, should theoretically uh, at, at least be more than covered by that larger settlement uh, that they got. So in, in effect, you could look at it. I, it's a great question. Uh, you, you could look at it as, well, this is what I paid the public adjuster so that I didn't have to handle the claim. And it isn't just a case of I didn't have to handle the claim. Let's face it. Uh, the doctors or anybody else in the businesses that we insure are not in the business of settling claims. Public adjusters are in the business of settling claims. So they know the ins and outs. They know the tricks. Uh, again, it, it's a question of getting the right guys, reputable uh, guys. good, reputable people. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they can make themselves, they make their value, uh, you know, worthwhile. But they are typically compensated uh, on a percentage of what the claim value actually was some of them on the smaller claims will work on a flat fee basis, uh, but that th that varies on you know on on yeah, all, uh, firm firm to firm. Uh, but we we usually like to think of them in terms of the you know the, the bigger claims, uh, the the claim where you're really taking the burden of settlement uh, off and and the headaches and all the unknowns pretty much off of the uh, uh, the shoulders of the the policyholder who's not in that business and is just trying to get either back into their home uh, or back into their business and run their business. Now, is this uh, con is it negotiable? Is this fee negotiable, or is it limited by state law? How much they can they can charge uh, on, on a percentage basis? Uh, well, you're you're a little broken up there, but uh, I, yeah, I think the fees uh, are negotiable. Um, honestly, we we don't get involved in that. Uh, I, I believe, in a general sense, they are. Um, but that, that's uh, left between the policyholder and the uh, and and the public adjuster, and um, the, the the good the good public adjusters uh, they have fair a fair fee schedule, um, and and a person uh, can always a person always has the option of looking around. It, it's it's uh, it, it can be a market uh, driven thing. Uh, you know, you can look around for whoever's got the best rate, but I, I'd be more looking around for the person who's got the best reputation. Right. So you, you, you alluded to business interruption insurance, a, a very important policy, it seems, for, for optometrists. Uh, 
is this the type of coverage that, that has a fairly high deductible to keep the premiums low? Usually, Paul, uh, uh, the business interruption is usually part of the property policy. Remember, we started with uh, the conversation with sticks and bricks. So if there's a claim that involves business interruption, to, to have a claim, let me say this to you, to have a claim that involves business interruption, there has to be property damage. There has to be damage to the sticks and bricks. Now, the reason I'm getting back to those basics is that there's one deductible for the claim, it, depending on the policy. Now, I have to remember we're talking to a lot of states here. In most situations, there's one deductible, okay? Now, the, the deductible is certainly uh, the higher you take the deductible, the more money it's going to save uh, the insured in premium. But, in premium. but um, there's, all, there's also uh, uh, hourly deductibles on the business interruption. Basically, uh, they're, called, they're called waiting periods. They, they're, not, they're not called deductibles, but the reality is they are. And there might be one or two days. And in some cases, with, with some of our larger clients, we've got some longer waiting periods. Some are 72 hours now. And some are zero. Uh, yeah, and some are zero. Some are, some are the first day. So, um, but the business interruption is extremely important. Okay, so we, we, we hit the, uh, we talked a little bit about the deductible, but what we really ought to talk about is what, what is it? Business interruption pays the net income of a business and its continuing expenses. And to, uh, let, let's just say what, what might continuing expenses be? Uh, a mortgage, the uh, electric bill, um, the, the, the taxes uh, on the building. You're, you're paying all those things. Uh, uh, you might, uh, we, we, we've paid uh, on buildings that have had fires uh, that still aren't rebuilt yet. We're, we've paid to uh, cut the grass and do the landscaping uh, around the outside during this period of time. There are expenses that continue. Uh, the other thing is the net income. That, that would be the, uh, a calculation of the gross income minus the expenses, um, the normal expenses. What, what, what the insurance company is not going to give someone is their gross income because the, the all the expenses don't continue. So if you if an insurance company were to give a doc their gross income from the practice without deducting any expenses, there is no incentive for the doc or any other business person to get back into business. You could, you could just uh, you could you could fly down to Florida and uh, uh, lay in the sun for uh, three or four or five or six months and collect your gross. Well, well, who wouldn't do that? Uh, I'd do that. <laughs> sure. I'm, I'm just kidding. You know, speaking but, of... But uh, it's, it's the net income and continuing expenses. It's often that there's, there's two limitations. There's either a dollar limitation, which, uh, which means we have, let's just say as an example, a half a million or a million dollars worth of business interruption insurance on a policy. Or there's a time limit, which on a lot of doctor's practices is probably what they have, which is probably 12 months because they're the smaller business owner type uh, policies. And the ones, the, the type of policies where we do have dollar amounts, uh, those are dollar amounts that we have calculated uh, that Mike and I and other uh, responsible and professional insurance agents sit down every year with their clients and go through what we call a business interruption worksheet so that we come up with the right number that's going to keep these guys in business uh, if the worst happens. Right. Now, when, when this, the worst does happen, 
and I can just speak from experience, where a, a brand new office burned down, we were tapped out financially. So how do, we, do you, do you, how do you get the insurance companies to forward some, some of the settlement money before the entire amount is settled? Can you get an advance on, on the claim? Yeah, you usually, well, uh, go ahead, Mike. What you can do, uh, Paul, there is um, the, the insurance company, if you have a replacement cost policy, as uh, we alluded to earlier in the conversation, the answer is basically yes, okay? Let, let me tell you how. If you have a replacement cost policy, uh, the policy doesn't actually pay to replace the building or replace the contents, whatever it is you're replacing, until you actually replace it. And, of course, that takes some dollars. Uh, if you were to, let's just say, hypothetically, you were to say, okay, my $2 million building burned down, I'm not replacing it, even though you have $2 million worth of coverage. At that point, the insurance company is only obligated to give you, and we won't I don't want to overdo these terms, but they're only obligated to give you actual cash value of the building, which means depreciated value. So let's just say you had an older building and the depreciation was 50%. Uh, and again, maybe that will, uh, the depreciation is 50%. So, so if you're not going to rebuild the building, you're just going to walk away from it, which some people do, the insurance company is obligated to give you a million dollars because that was depreciated value of the building. So using that theory, that's how you fund up front when you're tapped out. That, that's how you get some of your funds by saying getting the actual cash value settlement from the insurance company. Uh, it, it allows you to start some of the rebuilding process and then uh, you pay for replacement cost as you replace. Um, right. They'll give you they'll give you a lump sum, and then as you replace, you'll get replacement cost. Now, if you have let, let's let's use a, um, uh, a, a a docs scenario that maybe he doesn't own his building and he he rents, um, but it's clear he had there's a fire in the building. Uh, it's clear that he wants to set up somewhere else. Okay, they're working on finding a location and so on and so forth. Uh, you can get an advance. You, you can get an advance from the insurance carrier. Uh, uh, the, our mo the most recent one we dealt with was, um, I think, uh, we were sitting in a meeting right after a claim, and the adjuster said, well, how much, how much do you need to get going over the next couple of weeks? And uh, he, he said, I need, I need you know, could, could you give me $35,000 today? He said, well, I'll give you $35,000 tomorrow. I mean, they were, they were doing it. How much do you need? To, to get going. That was an advance to put in the checking account, to get another place, to, to, to pay uh, his bills, get, get, get some inventory in for the stuff that was destroyed. And, you know, that worked, that worked very well. So that's, that's how it works. We're getting, we're, when we have this conversation uh, that we're having right now, we're really getting into the, the nuts and bolts of a claim. And I think we probably ought to keep it on the, on the, uh, on the big picture because, uh, uh, some of this uh, really requires a lot more explanation than we can give in the, in the amount of time uh, that we have. But we are trying to tell you that actual cash value uh, up front is one thing or an advance because you're trying to set up in business uh, is another way. But right. they certainly, they certainly do work with you in these situations because 
when they have business interruption on their policy, that's money that they are obligated or at least have to reserve to pay you. And the more of that there is, the more likely they, they want they want that claim to work quickly. They want to get you back in business to save themselves money. But right. that but that works for everybody when that happens. The faster they get back in, the faster a policyholder gets back into business, that's the less amount of business interruption the insurance company has to pay. So they're motivated. Right. You know, uh, we're just about coming to our to a close, but there's one thing that. Uh, we, you know, we, we're in the, the second opinion business. Many times patients want a second opinion. Uh, is there such a thing in the insurance industry? I, I'm certain uh, that this hour has made a lot of individuals know what they don't know now. <laughs> they didn't know, but now they sort of know. But they say, you know, I need some experts. Is there such a thing as uh, a firm like yours uh, doing consultations to see if a person is adequately insured? even if they're not in the uh, Philadelphia, South Jersey area? Yes, there is. And we do do, we do have a consulting practice in, in addition to our uh, insurance practice where we actually are providing clients uh, with policies. Uh, it, we, we basically use uh, the same process. Now that all depends on, on how much of a second opinion the other person wants, uh, the, the, the doc would want, what policies they would want us uh, to look at. Uh, but yes, the, the, the answer is yes, we do. We do have a consulting practice. We will help people that are in, uh, in other areas and uh, we, we will give them uh, a second look, if you will. Uh, we've, been, we've been doing that for a long time. And, um, and, and we're, we're happy to do it. And we're, and we're just as happy to try to help them place insurance, but we will give people a look. And, uh, yeah, we're, we'd be happy to do that. that. That's terrific. Well, just we're just about ready to close up shop here. Uh, do you have any closing thoughts, gentlemen? Anything you'd like to, to, to a final thought that you'd like to leave our members with? Well, uh, to all the doctors, I, I at, at the risk of, of uh, and risk. I'm, I'm using the word risk, uh, <laughs> uh, but I'm not trying to have. Uh, at, at the risk of uh, continuing to repeat myself, uh, the most important thing is to be prepared to have the conversations that we're having now to have them before the claim. Uh, that's all I can say is is to be prepared, have the proper limits. If the proper limits are costing you more money, if, if we have a conversation. And, and the doctor is going, oh, my goodness, that's a lot more coverage than I was thinking about. This is going to cost me money. Then you should be looking at deductibles. Uh, there, there's, there's, ways to, uh, there's ways to mitigate uh, some of the costs. But the most important thing is to position yourself uh, uh, to have a, in, in the event that, that you have a claim that you're at least somewhat positioned instead of uh, thinking, oh, my word, I've been renewing this policy for eight or nine years. The bill comes in. Hey, believe me, guys, we know you're busy. The, the, actually, to be frank with you, the, the docs are often sometimes are, are the hardest clients, the hardest clients for us to talk to because they are so busy. Um, but uh, and we know you're getting busier. OK, there, there's more demands on, on you and your time and, and you're doing it for less money. We, we understand. Believe me, we do. We're all doing that. But but don't 
don't renew your insurance policy for eight or 10 years. It, it comes in the mail. You write the check. You send the stub off. You, you stick it in the file or you scan it, whatever you, you do with it, and you just, okay, I, I now, now I don't have to think about that for, for another year. Well, that, that's not how you want to do it. That, that's all I'm going to say. Put, put some time in it. It, it could be a, a tremendous investment. And, and if you don't, if you don't have a claim, and trust me, guys, we don't want you to have a claim. Uh, we're very happy when people don't have claims. And if you don't, at least you have peace of mind. Actually, it's, it's, like, it's like us going to the doctor and, and, and the guy, you guys, you know all the terms. Uh, you use those lights to look in the eyes and all those great things that you do. And I know you're looking for more than, than just, just a problem with the eyes. So does the guy have diabetes or high blood pressure? All the things you can tell by looking, I don't have any idea. But, you know, when I leave, other than my eyes being dilated and I'm blinded by the sun, uh, other than that, I feel pretty good. Hey, these guys just looked at me and, and I need a correction, but, but there's nothing wrong with me. Do you know what I mean? That's, that's, that's where we are. Well, we and, and our listeners will have an opportunity uh, since we do have uh, this taped and it will be on OD Wire and your names and addresses will be there. And if they want to reach you uh, and you've indicated that you do do consultation work, uh, it will be a, a time well invested for our optometrists. Add any more final thoughts? No, I think I think this has been great. We learned an awful lot. And uh, I think you just want to be prepared for anything is the thing that I, I've sort of learned. You know, I don't think... You know, uh, as as Paul mentioned, you you never really think that the fire is going to happen to you, and then it happens to you. <laughs> um, so even if you think you're in an area that's geographically safe or isolated, you know things can happen. Um, so I guess that that would be my final takeaway from all this is that it's better to be prepared than unprepared. Thanks a lot, gentlemen. It, it was our pleasure. Thank you for having us. Take care, Paul. Take care, Adam. Thank, Thank you for the opportunity. Bye-bye. Thanks.